October 4, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, the hazards of seropositivity. Which do you prefer in psoriatic arthritis? Old versus new? Ixikizumab or adalimumab? And lastly, when do rheumatologists do MRIs in rheumatoid arthritis patients? Let's start with an oldie but goodie and a total shocker, could Vioxx be making a comeback? As you know, Vioxx was taken off the market in 2003, but its patent has uh, actually worn out as of 2017. And in a recent move, a small pharma company has petitioned the FDA for a new orphan drug indication for rofecoxib, that's right, Vioxx, for, the use, for its use in patients who have hemophiliac arthropathy. They make the claim that there's a large unmet need here. There are no effective therapies. There are some studies showing its efficacy, and they hope to get approval. Now, of course, there's a, a big concern here about the safety of Vioxx in the open market, and if it does get approved for a small orphan drug indication, no doubt it's going to get widespread use. The only thing that might prevent that would be a much higher cost because of the rarity of the indication. So that might prevent the use, but it's unclear as to whether the FDA may take this application seriously. It does meet the, the standards for an orphan drug indication. We'll have to wait and see. Another study comes out of CMAJ. That's a Canadian medical journal. It's a study from British Columbia and some of the uh, health data that they have there. Hyun Choi and colleagues looked specifically at severe skin reactions that occur with allopurinol. We know they're relatively rare. They're more common in certain Chinese groups, but they looked at the association with renal disease and heart disease. Specifically, they found that if you have cardiac disease, you have up to about a one and a half fold higher risk or 50%, 40% higher risk of developing these very severe cutaneous reactions. However, if you have renal disease, it's 11 fold, that would be 1100% increased risk. This sort of speaks strongly in favor of using low-dose allopurinol for your first dose, especially in patients who either have heart disease or patients with renal disease. Mother to baby is an interesting po uh, prospective study. Uh, in this particular report, they um, uh, chronicle the, the results of 528 RA patients who become pregnant. And specifically, they look at the risk of using steroids in these patients and developing preterm birth. Now, preterm birth is not an uncommon outcome in patients with inflammatory or autoimmune disease, patients who are on either DMARDs or biologics. It seems to be higher than that seen in the general population, and it's a significant uh, problem for both the mother and for the baby. But nonetheless, this particular study looked at steroid use and showed that preterm birth was associated with steroid use, especially with higher doses, suggesting it maybe the steroids are the risk factor here. If you were using very high dose steroids, you had up to a five-fold increased risk. If you were using medium dose steroids, uh, you had a, almost a two-fold increased risk. The risk seemed to get more substantial in the second half of pregnancy, but overall steroid use could be a risk factor for preterm birth, especially amongst rheumatoid arthritis patients. Jay Room has an interesting study coming from Kaiser Health that again attempts to look at the really problematic issue of adherence to hydroxychloroquine amongst patients with lupus. This is a large study. This is almost 2,000 patients who have lupus within the Kaiser system in California. 
and shows that only 58% of patients were adherent to hydroxychloroquine. Shocking. They define adherence as, uh, as actually filling and using at least 80% or more of the prescription each month. Non-adherence was not predicted by the rheumatologist, the hospital setting, the hospital, or the socioeconomic status of the patient. It seems that some of the maybe substantial risk factors that we can learn from is that it was more likely in older lupus patients, in Caucasian lupus patients, and those who have had more visits in the last year. That doesn't make any sense. They're having more visits. Presumably, they're having more activity and need more drug. Well, obviously, you're worried about the patient. The patient's worried about what you're giving them. This is a major issue, especially in the control of lupus. But we have this issue with all our drugs. It just seems to be more important in that particular population. Arthritis care and research has done an interesting study on seropositivity and outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis. In the last year, I've had an increasing interest in this particular issue of seropositive versus seronegative patients. I have a lecture on this. Now, seronegative patients is number one, an opportunity for you to constantly rethink the diagnosis and the need for ongoing DMAR therapy. But it turns out that seronegative patients don't have milder disease. In many respects, they have to have more criteria to be called seronegative RA. They often have more disease activity measures than do seropositive patients. It's a very interesting subset, and many of them do revert to other diagnoses if followed over time. In this particular study, they looked at the association between seropositivity and mortality. So they looked at patients who uh, were ACPA positive or rheumatoid factor positive, and they showed that higher titers of ACPA or CCP and or rheumatoid factor were independently associated with a 60 to 80% increased mortality risk compared to patients who were seronegative. That's substantial. Um, and it says that may, and while we think a lot of that mortality risk may be related to inflammation, I just told you that a lot of patients with seronegative disease often, often have a lot of disease activity, may not actually have the degree of inflammation as measured by maybe synovitis or set rate CRP. But nonetheless, this is a curious issue. Turns out that if you look at patients, uh, RA patients who are on DMARDs, seropositivity has the same effect, a significant increase in mortality. You look at patients who are on biologics, or biologic DMARDs as some call them, actually that difference is now gone, suggesting that biologic control maybe of inflammation, while it may not control or lessen rheumatoid factor or CCD positivity, it certainly may affect inflammation to the point that it may lower uh, the risk of death. So that's a very interesting study. We'll see, need to see more data on this going forward. Also talking about RA and death, we know that one of the main reasons for death in RA patients is cardiac disease. Another arthritis care and research article looked at 101 RA patients followed prospectively, looking at cardiac CTs. And these patients were followed for up to, looks like seven years, 83 months. Half the patients, 48%, had progression of plaque by these cardiac CTs. It looks like if, you, if you're looking at those who had high calcium um, um, uh, CT scores, the progressors were more likely to be older, obese, hypertensive, and have more cumulative inflammation. This is something rheumatologists are paying attention to and need to pay more attention to in counseling their patients and assessing their patients for cardiovascular risk uh, at early on in the disease. And these are, this is, these are studies of patients with established disease. I think we need to be paying uh, close attention to these. 
We reported this particular uh, study last week, but didn't include it in the podcast. It's about TIF-1 uh, gamma antibodies. It comes from the September issue of Rheumatology, wherein they had a supplement devoted to reports from the British Society of Rheumatology meeting. It's a nice short report that gives you an overview of TIF-1 gamma. As you know, this has been seen associated with cancer, but specifically it may be seen in dermatomyositis patients in up to 31% of adults and up to 29% of kids. Uh, it turns out the association with cancer is only seen in adults over the age of 39. So that's a nice teaching point. TIF-1 gamma is uh, one of several new autoantibodies that are seen in patients with dermatomyositis that you should be looking for. I'm looking for them. TIF-1 gamma, uh, NXP2, and also MDA5. NXP2 also has association with cancer, has an association seen in kids and adults, has an association with calcinosis, as we reported before. And the MDA5 is seen in patients who don't have much in the way of myositis, but may have really uh, ugly ulcerative skin lesions and a strong propensity to lung disease. So we also included some nice news articles this week uh, about women going into subspecialty fellowships. This particular report comes from JAMA Internal Medicine, where they compared the percentage of women from 1991 to 2017. In 1991, the number of women in internal medicine residence, residency was 30%. By 2016, this had risen to 43%. There was a similar increase in fellowships in the number of women in fellowships. And it turns out that the greatest increase was seen in endocrinology, rheumatology, and geriatrics, such that by 2017, 60% of those in rheumatology fellowships were women, only to be outdone by endocrinology, where it was 71%, and geriatric medicine, where it was 77%, who were women. The question is, why are all these women going into it? Number one, there's more women going into medicine these days than ever before. Two, these are specialties where there's more personal, interpersonal contact. These are specialties where only the brightest and smartest of doctors go into these fellowships, rheumatology, endocrinology, even geriatrics, very challenging. Um, and it could also be a lifestyle issue that may suit women as well. I think it's a trend we'll see more of. There's another nice report that comes from the Annals of Rheumatic Disease. It's a, a direct head-to-head -head study of ixekizumab versus adalimumab in patients who are, bi who are biologic naive, who had previously seen um, a DMARD prior to starting this particular study. They had that active disease get going in. And here, the interesting point of this study was they had a co-primary endpoint of an ACR50 response along with a POSI100 response. That's total clearing of their psoriasis. So they enrolled 500, they enrolled a whole bunch, but they actually randomized 566 patients to either ixekizumab or adalimumab in standard doses. It's a 52-week study. The primary endpoint was at 24 weeks, and at 24 weeks, the primary endpoint favored ixekizumab 36% over adalimumab, and that was significant. This difference between these two was really driven by skin responses. So in, if you're looking at POSI 100s, ixekizumab at a 60% POSI 100 rate versus 47% in adalimumab, and that was significant. What was not significant was the ACR50s. They were similar between both drugs, achieving either 51 or 57% ACR50 responses, suggesting that IL-17 inhibition may be equal to TNF inhibition in patients with psoriatic arthritis. But if the skin is a big issue, well, the IL-17s win 
hands down and may make the better choice. Our last report comes from Jay Room, and it's interesting because it's the use of anakinra in hospitalized patients who have gout or pseudogout. This is a 100 patient prospective, actually retrospective study that had a total of 115 episodes of inflammatory arthritis, most of which were gout, some of which were pseudogout. These were mostly men. The average age was 60 years of age. And they looked at these events between 2014 and 2017. They identified the patients really because they received anakinra. This wasn't a randomized study. This is an open label retrospective report of their experience. Nonetheless, uh, older males, and they saw really dramatic responses. These people had, in general had been tried on other therapies. And when they used anakinra, they had a partial or complete spot response to anakinra within four days in 75% of patients. Of those who did respond, 75% of them responded within one day. There was no unusual or untoward outcomes here. So we know that IL-1 inhibition does work in gout. We know it's not gonna get approved for management of acute gout in the outpatient setting, although you could choose to use it on your own if the patient wants to pay for it. In a hospitalized setting where patients are more complex, may have renal transplant, may have multiple comorbidities or steroids or whatever, this may be a very um, vital and useful option for patients who are otherwise difficult to control. I'll end with, an, uh, I think, an interesting survey I did this week on Twitter. The survey question was, when would you use an MRI in your RA patients and maybe what to assess? The answers were treatment response, uh, uncertain clinical status, um, a response to therapy. I said, oh, uh, if they have erosions, uncertain status, or I don't do MRI. The answers were, think about that, what would you do? 2% said they would do it for a treatment response. 11% said they would do it to assess erosions. 38% said they would do it to assess a patient's uncertain status, meaning, meaning Maybe they don't understand the clinical situation. Maybe it was for diagnostic purposes. Maybe it was to discern whether it's mechanical versus periarticular versus inflammatory uh, activity. Uh, again, I left uncertain status up to the person answering the question. Um, but the ha half of you, 49%, said they nearly never do an MRI uh, in RA patients. That's where I am. I nearly never do it. Occasionally, I've done it if I, I'm looking for, at uncertain status, but Boy, I could count on two fingers the number of MRIs I've done in RA in the last 10 years. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, again, how your responses are compared to your peers. That's it for this week on Room Now. Go to the website, check out these citations, learn more, tune into Room Now. Take care.